Adam, thanks for joining us. This is like an annual tradition, Danny. It is an annual May, tradition. End of the year. And I always look forward to it. <laughs> Me too. So we're going to talk about the year that was in biotech, what's ahead for 2021. This was perhaps the strangest and most eventful year since we started doing this. Let's start with COVID. This was a year both defined by and shaped by the pandemic. Before we talk about any therapies or vaccines, what have you made about the response in general? And what do you think it tells us about our ability to respond to future pandemics? I guess I look at it in a few different ways. I mean, if I really want to depress myself, I guess I think about, you know, the 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 really sort of poor performance or the poor way that uh, the poor response of the United States and sort of how we dealt with, uh, you know, with the pandemic. I mean, you know, did you ever think that, you know, mask wearing would become like a political issue? You know, I mean, maybe that's the that's the worst distillation of of everything that's happened this year. Um, and, you know, it, it just seems like such a waste, doesn't it, that that we were not able to come together as a country to deal with this crisis in a way that would, you know, get us through it relatively quickly. You know, uh, obviously, it was always going to be a struggle, but I think it, it, it was prolonged and more people got sick and certainly more people died than was necessary. And that's a tragedy. So I, I think, you know, you can't start a conversation like this without without saying something like that. You know, on the more hopeful side, um, you know, you look at the vaccines and you think that, you know, we went from, you know, learning about the virus uh, in like late December, January, you know, sequencing the virus, and then now seeing people vaccinated with two different vaccines that are highly effective um, in the span of, you know, 11 months which is phenomenal. Uh, I think that, that speaks to, you know, obviously we're, we are biotech people. Um, we, we cover the industry. And, and so it speaks to um, the ability of, you know, drug makers, um, biotech industry to, to do this, you know, to basically get us or start to get us out of this crisis. Well, last I checked, 1.7 million deaths worldwide, 320,000 deaths in the United States. As you mentioned, we've seen the development and approval of effective vaccines in uh, an impressive time. Let me ask you uh, a newsroom editor question. Who are the winners and losers? Uh, define winners and losers in this. In this well, in I mean, who comes out of this pandemic uh, as having you know, performed above and beyond and, and where have we seen failures on either the industry side, the regulatory side, the, um, well, you know, I mean, unfortunately, I mean, I think, you know, we all are sort of losers because of this thing that happened to us. Right. I mean, I think we can't, you know, I don't, I don't want to sort of, you know, say somebody actually like wins out of this thing, but I mean, if you had to sort of, you know, if you had to sort of applaud some people, I mean, I mean, certainly, you know, I, I would say, you know, the drug makers, uh, the biotech companies who have, you know, who've sort of definitely moved quickly to develop these vaccines or therapeutics. Um, I think that, uh, you know, it's the only way that we're really going to get out of this is to have vaccines and therapeutics that are going to be able to, uh, you know, treat people, vaccinate, protect us from future infections. So, I mean, I think that's a, you know, that's a win. Um, 
who else? I mean, I don't know who who else is who else is sort of showing themselves to be worse. Look, I mean, you know, I would say, you know, I think you have to sort of say that, uh, you know, Operation Warp Speed for all of like the fact that you know Trump handled this pandemic so badly, you know, just horribly. You know, the fact is, that I think that Operation Warp Speed did help facilitate the development, particularly on the vaccine side of getting the government involved in in the ways that they could support the drug makers and the people who are developing the vaccines. I think in that way, I think Operation Warp Speed was a success. Um, We'll see how well the distribution of the vaccination programs go. But I mean, I would give, you know, I would give them, you know, high marks for for that program and the way that it helped to, you know, kind of accelerate the, the development of the vaccines. A lot of focus obviously have been on the vaccines of late, but many companies have been working to repurpose therapies that might have value in COVID-19. Is there anything on the therapeutic side that you found compelling? You know, I think it's been a, on the therapeutic side, it's been a little bit of a mixed bag um, and maybe, maybe kind of a disappointment if you think about it. I mean, I, I think back to kind of, I guess the early spring, middle of spring, like kind of like, you know, March, April, May, where I think we were really excited about, you know, the potential for some antivirals, you know, we got remdesivir came out and I think remdesivir came out at a time when like there was literally nothing. And it came at a time when, if you remember hospitals, particularly in the Northeast were, you know, you know, were, were just overflowing with patients. So there was a lot of excitement about remdesivir, but you know, the drug itself was not all that effective. Right. And I think we're sort of learning that, um, you know, we, I think we knew that at the time, but it was really the only thing. Um, and then since then, you know, we've had the antibodies that have come out, you know, we've got the Regeneron antibody, we've got the Lilly antibody, and they seem to be okay. Uh, I don't see anybody necessarily like jumping up and down that, the, that these are like the answer. And the, the problems that we're seeing now is that now that they're, now that they're out under EUA, they've got conditional approval, is that it's really, it's difficult to find patients to that it's, it's difficult to treat patients with them, right? Because, um, you know, you've got to, these are infusions and the hospitals are not really set up for infusions to, to infuse these drugs. You got to bring them into the hospital and you don't want to bring COVID patients in. So like, it's, it's been difficult. And, you know, we've heard stories that, um, you know, that the, the antibodies are kind of sitting on the shelves and they're not being used as much. So, you know, we've, we've seen some drugs repurposed, um, you know, and so I would say that, you know, it's a little bit, like I said, it's, I think it's a mixed bag that I think it probably, you know, there's still a lot more work to be done on the therapeutic side. I mean, I think what we really need is we need a better antiviral is what we really need. Um, we need something like, we need something like a really effective Tamiflu. Like Tamiflu is not the most effective drug for the flu, but like, if you get the flu, you know, you can go get Tamiflu. You can go, you can go to the, the, your doctor can prescribe it. You can go to your drugstore, you can get it. Um, it could shorten the, it can shorten the flu. It could make it less severe. That's what we really need. We need like an antiviral, a good antiviral against COVID that, you know, your doc, if you showing signs or symptoms of COVID, your doctor can prescribe it. You can go get it, take it orally. Um, there are, there are a few more antivirals that are in clinical trials. Now we haven't seen the data yet. So hopefully we will get something like that. Cause I think that will be really important. We started the year with the pharmaceutical industry in the toilet. 
there's been a fair bit of goodwill towards the industry from its response to the pandemic. How lasting do you think this will be? And, and perhaps the better question will be, what are they going to do to blow it? <laughs> well, Danny, you're just like, you know, Mr. Positivity there. <laughs> um, well, look, from a stock market perspective, uh, it's been an incredible year, right? For the biotech and drug makers. I mean, they, you know, vastly outperforming the broader indices. It seems like, you know, like, I mean, literally like you can throw a dart at a stock and it, it goes up. I mean, it's like, it's been incredible. Um, and then there's been just tons and tons of money that have flown into the, that have sort of come into the sector, right? Whether it's, you know, investors putting money into the sector, it's, you know, IPOs and on the private side, like VCs and all, I mean, like, you know, there's just tons and tons of money that's flooding in. Um, whether that, continues you know you know i don't really have a crystal ball to be able to say that i i would say that you know for a large you know a lot of it has to do with not only sort of macro macro reasons that you know the the, the fed and the government have just sort of are set up in a way that just are pushing the stock market higher and higher so like you know it's kind of non-drug biotech reasons for why this is happening um you know the drug the drug sector is also you know pretty defensive you know in an in, in a bad economy you know people still take their medicines so like it's you know you've had a lot of investors who've kind of seen um, pharma and and biotech as kind of a defensive sector now that may change if the economy improves if we get out of covid in 2021 and we start emerging some of the sectors which were really beaten down in the economy, you know, investors may start moving their money into those sectors and out of biotech. So that could be something to watch in 2021. Um, and then like valuations, you know, valuations in biotech um, have gotten kind of crazy. Um, and, you know, the, the problem there is, is that, you know, when you need more money, you have to keep raising money. And will, they, will these companies be able to continue to raise money at higher and higher valuations at some point? They may not be able to do that. Nevertheless, as you note, it's been a record year of finance for the industry. IPOs have gone crazy. The NASDAQ biotechs at near record highs, if not record highs. Uh, you know, the money that's been pouring into early stage companies are mind blowing. So it's, it's not just people betting on, uh, on the market here or, or COVID profits, but you know, do you see other things driving this? I mean, it's not a defensive play to sink $100 million into a, a startup that's five years away from the clinic. No, I mean, I think that's one of the, uh, definitely one of the things that, you know, you're seeing more and more of is you're seeing like, you know, now like, you know, some company, some private startup gets $100 million in like some, you know, series A round. It's like not even a big deal anymore, right? I mean, we don't even blink. Um, and we see preclinical companies going public with like billion dollar valuations you know, again, they're not even in the clinic yet, right? Um, you know, I, we, you know, I was joking with someone that like, you know, the old $300 million market cap is the new $1 billion market cap. Um, you know, I don't know how long that could last. I mean, it's, you know, again, it's, I think it's just being driven by the fact that, you know, people A, see, you know, this, like to see the growth and they see what's going on with COVID and they see all this innovation and they want to be part of that. Um, and, it's working right now. It doesn't mean that it works forever. Um, there seems to be this insatiable demand for IPOs. Uh, I don't know if that can, you know, last forever. But it's you know, as long as they, as long as they, they continue to work, 
I guess it, it will. I mean, it, that sounds like a stupid answer. Like, of course, it, it will work until it doesn't, uh, you know, but <laughs> so, I don't know when it doesn't. I don't know when, when it switches over. It, it's been a very solid year for new drug approvals, but we've also seen a lot of trials halted during the year because of the pandemic. At what point do you think will they affect the, the flow of, of new approvals or, or will they avoid that? Um, you know, it, I think early on in the pandemic, there were a lot of clinical trials that were delayed. They were put on hold. I mean, for obvious reasons that, you know, that we were in this crisis and, and you couldn't enroll patients or you couldn't treat patients. So I think that as time went on, companies have learned to adapt to the environment. As I talk to companies, they seem to have been able to, you know, both kind of change their clinical trials in terms of either maybe the way that they were monitoring patients. They've been working with the FDA who's, who's kind of taken a flexible attitude towards this. So I think it's gotten a lot of, it's gotten a lot better where clinical trials have restarted, uh, new clinical trials have, have started. I think it's, so I don't think it's really impacted um, the industry as much as maybe people had worried about if you think back to like March and April, you know, on the FDA side, it's been a pretty good year for approvals. It's not, there's no, it hasn't been like a record setting year. Um, we've also seen a lot of drugs get rejected, not necessarily for efficacy, although we, we see that, but, you know, there's been a lot of manufacturing issues that have come up, um, particularly when it comes to sort of gene therapies. We've seen some hiccups on, the manufacturing side, kind of CMC side, quality control. Um, we've had some issues where, you know, manufacturing plants have not been inspected, you know, again, because of COVID, you know, the, the FDA is obviously under a lot of pressure um, to kind of focus its attention on COVID and hasn't been able to do some other things that they normally do. So we've seen some issues where delays of approvals because of, you know, manufacturing plants haven't been inspected. You know, again, that hopefully will, that will like work itself out as kind of things get back to normal. It looked like it was going to be a relatively dull year for M&A with a, a lack of blockbuster deals. Gilead's $21 billion acquisition of Immunomedics only upstaged by AstraZeneca's announcement of its $39 billion acquisition of Alexion. What do you think of those two deals and, and what do they tell you? Um, yeah, it, it was like a, I guess, it, I don't know, is it like an okay? Is that a, is that a way to describe it? It was an okay year for M&A. I mean, you're right, like that last, you know, the, the Alexion deal kind of was a nice way to end the year. Um, you know, those deals seem fine. I, I think what it kind of shows you, uh, you know, is we've, we've got this issue where, you know, you've got the larger cap biotech companies, which are really having a hard time figuring out how to grow. And, you know, they're doing all kinds of things, partnerships, and they're doing smaller deals. Um, you know, Alexion was an issue where, you know, they were, they were actually growing pretty decently and um, they were, they were diversified. I think operationally they were doing fine, but I think that they weren't getting a lot of credit for it. And there had been some pressure, investor pressure to, you know, basically to figure out what to do. And, you know, they ended up selling themselves. Um, so, you probably will see more of that. Like I think next year, like, I, you know, one of the big things that I'm watching for next year is looking at what happens to Biogen, for instance, right? So we've got Aducatumab, which has got its FDA approval decision date uh, in the beginning of March. Um, 
I don't think that that drug is going to get approved, although you never know, it could get approved. But I think most people, if you ask, I think the consensus is that it won't. And if they don't get that drug approved, then what does Biogen do, right? They've been in this position where they, they, they're even a more desperate position. Um, so you could either see them being sold or having to kind of do some kind of big m and um, I kind of see Amgen, I mean, Amgen's not in that sort of dire straits, but like, you know, Amgen hasn't done a really big acquisition in, a, in I don't know, it's been a long time. I think Onyx was like the last big acquisition that they did. Um, and so, you know, are they going to go out and do something? I think, you know, that's another company that you could see maybe doing something in 2021. Although I, I always make these predictions and they never turn out right. So don't listen to me. Welcome to the club. <laughs> uh, it wouldn't be Christmas without your list of best and worst CEOs. This year, you've got two for each category, a, a COVID and a non-COVID selection by your readers. Who came in the best spot and why? On the best side on COVID, what I did, you know, and it's kind of, this is sort of a no-brainer, is, is kind of highlight... Uh, the, the CEOs who led the efforts to develop the COVID vaccines, right? So, you know, Albert Borla uh, at Pfizer, Ugar Sahin at, at BioNTech, which is, you know, the part, Pfizer's partner, and then Stefan Bonsell uh, at Moderna. I mean, you know, it, it's, again, you know, I mean, where would we be today? I mean, I, I hate to think about where we would be today without, you know, without the vaccines, uh, you know, being approved and, and, and rolling out these days. That was super important. And how about on the um, non-COVID side? So on the non-COVID side, um, you know, I, I, it's funny when I do these best, when I, in, in, in a sort of in a normal year, when I do the best CEO things, you know, it's oftentimes, um, it's oftentimes a CEO who sold this company for a lot of money, right? Because that awards shareholders and everyone's happy. And so, you know, this year, the three nominees for best CEO were Bazad Agazadeh from Immunomedics. You know, they sold out to, um, they sold out to Gilead. You know, you had Tassos uh, Giannakakos from, uh, from Myocardia. Again, another M&A deal. But then I had um, Sam Kalkarni from CRISPR Therapeutics. Uh, and he was, a, that's not an M&A, but it's just a great story of, you know, kind of the potential, this potential for CRISPR-based therapeutics to cure diseases. You know, they had some, they had some really fantastic data in December with a, you know, with their one-time uh, CRISPR-based therapy to treat beta thalassemia and sickle cell disease, you know, that's partnered with Vertex. So, um, you know, I stuck him on there because I think they've done a really good job of kind of moving forward with this CRISPR-based uh, treatments, you know, kind of in some ways separating themselves from some of the other CRISPR-based companies in terms of getting data out into the, you know, getting into the clinic and getting data out. So um, he was a nominee and actually, you know, my readers vote and Sam Kulkarni from CRISPR Therapeutics won. And on the worst CEO side? So the worst CEO side. So, um, you know, I picked... So for the COVID category, so it was not a poor Hassan from Cytodyne, and the less I say about him, the better. Um, uh, Joseph Kim from Innovio Pharmaceuticals, and and Henry Yi from Sorrento, you know, and those three are all examples, I think, of companies that have sort of tried to exploit the COVID crisis, uh, you know, and gotten in way, way over their heads. You know, you've seen tons of companies who've done this, and some companies do it for the good. Some companies do it for the bad. Uh, those three, I think, did it for the bad. And so they're on there. Um, you know, I had another COVID worse CEO candidate and that, and, you know, 
and this is a big name, Pascal Sorio from AstraZeneca. Um, again, and if you look at AstraZeneca, you know, actually they had a really good year, except for the way that they ran their COVID vaccine program. As you know, that's the program that's partnered with, um, with Oxford University in the UK. You know, they've had all kinds of hiccups and issues, uh, delays getting that vaccine rolled out. Um, and so he landed on my, on my worst list. And for the non-COVID? So non-COVID, uh, so th- probably the, you know, and I don't know if it, I don't know if it was overwhelming, but like the winner on the quote unquote winner on, on worst um, CEO this year was Nick Leshley at Bluebird Bio. And, you know, that was a tough one because I personally like Nick. And I think that, you know, there was a time when Bluebird was like this kind of sterling example of, of gene therapy companies and kind of doing, you know, doing great science, but you know, they've had a, they've had a really bad run over like the last year, 18 months where, you know, they've had tons of delays, uh, manufacturing problems, you know, and, and what I wrote in, in the piece, I said that, you know, that, these groundbreaking gene therapies for pay are great, except if, you know, except if the, they can't get out to the patients that need them. And, and that's what's happened to Bluebird this year is that, you know, they've, they've been able to develop these, you know, these therapies for patients, but yet, you know, delays and snafus and problems that they've had have, have kind of, you know, caused these things to get pushed back and back. And, and so they're not getting, they're not reaching the patients who need them. And for that reason, uh, Nick was worse CEO. We've had a presidential election this year. New leadership is headed to Washington. Will this have consequences for the pharmaceutical industry? And with the Senate in the balance in the Georgia senatorial runoff, will that have meaningful consequences? Well, yeah. I mean, I think, you know, on a sort of on a more hopeful note, I would think that, uh, and I think we've seen this already, in that um, Biden has made it clear that you know, science is, is not going to be a four-letter word. <laughs> you know, like that, like sci- like scientists are going to be put in charge of, of of these of of COVID and other things where they need to be, and 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 he's going to listen to the scientists. So I think from that perspective, uh, you know, I think we all should be pretty pleased with what maybe what's going to happen over the next four years. And I think you could see that just in his early picks for, you know, certain, you know, cabinet level posts and stuff where it seems like, you know, he's got some competent people who he's trying to, to bring in. Uh, you mentioned Georgia, obviously um, a lot of the, the sort of policy issues will come down to what can get through and, and that will, that will be determined by, uh, you know, who controls the Senate. And so we still have to wait to see what happens in the Georgia runoff elections and to see what happens there. Um, you know, I think that the pharmaceutical and biotech company sectors will probably would be happy with a split government because the, the likelihood that um, there's consensus on drug pricing issues is probably um, less a lot, a lot less likely under a sort of a split government. So we'll see how that plays out. So I understand you spent some time on Twitter. Um, oh, yeah. Man, Twitter this year has been tough. I got to tell you. <laughs> So it's one of the <laughs> one of the things that you know I found interesting was in the wake of the killing of George Floyd, biotech companies were quick to treat things like Black Lives Matter. Mm-hmm. Is there any social awakening in biotech? 
And, and do you see this playing out in the C-suite or in the makeup of clinical trials in 2021? I mean, I think, yeah. I mean, I think you're right in that, you know, companies were quick to kind of go out there and be supportive and say Black Lives Matter, uh, you know, and then the rest of the stuff sort of has to, to follow. I mean, you know, one of the things that we started doing this year, again, in response to a lot of this is, you know, we started asking companies for uh, the the gender and racial breakdown of their, of the patients and participants in their clinical trials. Because um, I think we know, historically, we know that, um, you know, Black people and other people of other people's of color are underrepresented in clinical trials. Um, and that's been a it's been a longstanding issue with the way clinical trials are run. You 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 know we haven't recruited people. Um, you know these are predominantly patients who come in are predominantly white um, and male and male. Well, yeah. And so we, you know, we, so we decided as, a, as at stat, as a policy now is that like, whenever we, whenever we write about a clinical trial, we want to highlight the, the breakdowns uh, by race and by gender, just to, and not like in like a value sort of way, but just sort of to put the information out there, we feel like it's important to highlight. Um, and I think it's a reminder when you see like, oh, clinical trial, and it was 80, you know, it was, let's say 60% male and 70, 78% white, you know, and a smattering of, of black people and a smattering of Asian people and, you know, just that kind of thing, um, that it's a reminder that these companies need to do a better job. Um, and I think they knew, and I think they know that because when you ask them for that information, there's always this kind of uncomfortable, awkward silence <laughs> before they give, before they read the, the, they read the data out to you or the information out to you. Um, so I think, I think companies are, are aware of this and, and, all I can say is hopefully that we will start to see improvements uh, on that score and improvements in, in terms of my, you know, recruiting, um, you know, a diverse workforce as well. I mean, obviously that's an important, that's a very important issue too. You mentioned CRISPR earlier, the discoverers of CRISPR Cas9 shared the Nobel prize in chemistry this year. We've seen the start of clinical trials using in vivo gene editing in 2020. Mm -hmm. There are other technologies that are emerging that have the promise to have big impacts on the, treatment of diseases, anything you think will capture the imagination in 2021? Um, well, yeah, you, you mentioned in vivo, I, you know, I, I'm really interested to see, I, I don't know if the first data will come in 2021. I, I hope so. Maybe towards the end of the year, we may get some data uh, on an in vivo approach. And, and, you know, for those people who maybe don't know what we're talking about is, you know, kind of doing the, the gene editing inside the body instead of taking the cells out editing them outside and then putting them back in. Uh, so we should start seeing some of that data um, this year and, you know, we'll see what it looks like. I think that's kind of potentially really exciting. Um, what else do I want? What else am I looking for this year? Um, you know, CNS has been a big area. I think that continues to be an area, uh, you know, thing uh, in cancer. You know, I think what's you're seeing a lot of stuff, you know, a lot of the biospecifics, uh, a lot of data oh, to the point where like there's just an, or like, it, you know, we just had the ash meeting in December. Like I couldn't believe how much data there was on biospecifics. It, you know, it's, it's amazing how much there is, um, you know, on the cell therapy side, you know, CAR T, I would say like, I don't want to say CAR T is like the old thing, but it's kind of become, it seems like it's starting to become a little bit. And now you're starting to see like, you know, more of the off the shelf cell cell therapy stuff kind of coming out. Like, you know, we're seeing early data and then other cell therapies like, you know, like natural killer cell and K cell stuff. I think that's kind of, there was some pretty interesting early data at ASH this year. And so we should see more of that um, in 2021. 
the JP Morgan Healthcare Conference is going virtual this year. The good news is you can get a room at the St. Francis this year for less than two hundred dollars. <laughs> yeah, I was going to say, what what are hotel rates? You're like you, you live out there? I like, checked. It's yeah. less. Is it <laughs> one ninety one? I saw for the week of JP wow. Morgan. Nice. While we've gotten used to virtual conferences this year, do you think? This will have a material effect on the ability of companies to raise money or make deals. You know, I, I'm really interested in kind of seeing how it all is going to play out. I, I don't know. Like, I'm trying to figure out how, what the sort of virtual JPM week will be like. Because, clear, you know, clearly you're not going to have that, that sort of buzz where everyone is in the same place and there's no cocktail parties. And, this, and so that's all gone. Um, but at the same time, I think that, you know, you can, I think what we've all learned is that, you know, over zoom and stuff, you can do a lot of this stuff, right? I mean, like that you can have meetings and, um, you can watch presentations and, and, and in some ways it's, it's more efficient to do it virtually than it is to sort of r- literally run around San Francisco from meeting to meeting. You know, if you're, if you're sitting in your house and you're dialing up zoom calls, you know, you can get a lot more done. So, um, but the best things that happen are when you're going from the they Park are. 55 to the Hilton to the no, St. Francis. And, and I think you're absolutely right, Danny. And what I I actually had said this to someone before, they said, like, what will you miss? And I said, I think you what you miss is that spontaneous interaction, right? You miss running into the person who you haven't seen in a while, whether you run into them in the street or you run them into at a party or an event. And, you know, they tell you something. Um, that's really cool. Like it sparks a conversation and it might spark a deal or for us as journalists, it may spark a story. You get like a really good scoop on something like you, you just don't do that. You can't get that when I'm sitting in my bedroom, you know, my like, you know, make made up office space. Um, you're just not, you can't do that. So that's the kind of stuff I'm going to miss. I mean, I, you know, I can, I can sit here and watch a webcast of a company presentation, you know? Yeah. And I'll probably be more efficient about it. Um, but you do miss that stuff. And I think that's the kind of stuff that like we'll all miss. Um, but I, I wonder, I wonder like, you know, whether missing that kind of stuff is enough to kind of get people to go back to JP Morgan in 2022, for instance, like I, that's what I'm really interested in seeing is like, if people sort of, they come out of this year feeling like, wow, you know what? I don't really need to be there. Yeah. And I, I don't know the answer to the question. Well, what are you going to be watching that week and beyond? You know, I just hope that it will be, I mean, look, I just hope there'll be news. Like I, I, I just hope that there'll be stuff happening. And, and I do worry about that a little bit, that absent that kind of buzz that you get from being, from all of us being together, that companies will not, you know, will not sort of treat this coming up sort of quote unquote JPM week the way that they normally would. And so we won't get the kind of news flow that we, that we normally see, um, and, you know, ultimately that's what I like because I want to be able to write about things. So, you know, I, I'm, I'm just sort of, I'm kind of going into this, not really knowing what it's going to be like. I mean, I will sit, you know, I will be ready like that Monday morning, like I normally am. Now they're running it on East coast time this year. So it's good for me, maybe less so for you. Um, so I don't have to get up, you know, I used to get up at three o'clock in the morning out there, like to get ready for the news and stuff that would come out. And now I can sort of do it, treat it like a normal work day here in Boston. So we'll, we'll see. <laughs> Adam Feuerstein, senior writer for Stat News. Adam, thanks as always. Danny, it's always a pleasure. Thanks.